Well, over the last uh, three weeks, four Sundays now, we've been thinking together about Advent longings. Advent longings. We've seen how God, from all eternity, and certainly from the fall of man into sin, was setting the stage for the greatest manifestation, the greatest revelation of glory, which would be Emmanuel, God with us. There could be nothing more glorious and nothing more marvelous than the God of the universe coming to earth to dwell among man. That's what those words mean that we just sang, veiled in flesh. The Godhead, see, the Godhead came and was enveloped in flesh. God has come to dwell among us. Emmanuel has come. And so we've been looking together at how these Old Testament longings, those Old Testament longings came to be fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. That sense of longing is expressed in a very old song that we sing today, that we even sang this morning, O come, O come, Emmanuel. The prophets had predicted that a Messiah would come, and they had a number of names for this Messiah, including Emmanuel. But each verse in that song starts off with another name for Jesus, for this coming Messiah. We've looked at Emmanuel from Isaiah 9. We've looked at the rod of Jesse, which comes from Isaiah 11. And last week, if you were here, we looked at Dayspring, which comes from a prophecy from a priest, also the father of John the Baptist, named Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. And we want to finish today with Key of David. This is the fourth verse of the song we sang today. There's actually seven verses originally in that song, and we're just covering four of them. comes from more of an obscure reference, that word key of David, in Isaiah 22, verse 22. It's actually referring to a servant in a palace, and it says that this servant of all people, a servant, is being granted the honor and authority of a king. And he talks about that authority in terms of having the keys, possessing keys. Isaiah 22, 22 says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. I wouldn't blame you if you're thinking, what does that have to do with Jesus? I thought the same thing. But John, the apostle, picks up this reference way over in Revelation chapter 3. And he attributes this key of David, this servant, to the person of Jesus, who is given honor and authority over the church. Well, it's that idea of using a key to open and close that verse 4 of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is talking about. You can see the words there on your sermon notes. O come, thou key of David, come. And open... Open wide our heavenly home, make safe the way that leads on high, and close the path of misery. Now, um, I had a little problem with the songwriter here because the song doesn't quite rhyme. I I was kind of looking over when we were singing that song to see if you were going to sing Miserai, because that rhymes with high. But some of you are kind of going both ways there, so yeah, it's kind of confusing. Unless, you know, in the old English, maybe that's how you pronounce it. Maybe if you go over to the U.K., Maybe that's what they say. Who knows? This was written by a, a, uh, someone that was British. 
But isn't that exactly what Jesus does? He rescues us from hell, and he locks the door behind us, while at the same time he unlocks the door to heaven so that he can bring his people home. And so we want to think today about that angle of the Christmas story, namely how Jesus is going to bring us home. Notice that this is a future anticipation. Jesus has come. That initial longing that the prophets wrote about has come. Emmanuel has come. Another song we sing says, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. But as we've been saying, there's another advent of Jesus to which the people of God, all of us, look ahead to. We still look ahead to it. It's coming. And it's precisely because Jesus came the first time, it's precisely because Jesus came the first time that we can sing this song confidently, that we can sing this song expectantly, knowing that he is coming again. But we also sing it not just, long, not just confidently and expectantly, but longingly, yearning to be rescued from the misery and the suffering and the agony and the sorrow and the darkness that are part of our pre-heaven existence. We were reminded of that last week, the contrast between Jesus as the day spring, Jesus as the sunlight, and our present darkness. When we lit the candle last week, we read from Isaiah 9, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, to them a light has shined. Or in the priest Zechariah's prophecy, just before Jesus was born, the one I referred to in Luke 1, 78 and 79, says the sunrise, or as the King James Version translates that, the day spring shall visit us from on high. Why? To give light to those who sit in darkness and who sit in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. See how the light is leading us into the way of something better, the way of light, the way of peace. Well, this key of David will open the door and be a light to those who exist in our present darkness and guide us into this way of peace. O come and open wide our heavenly home is the plea of the song. This is that for which we long. If you are maybe in a period, in a season of deep darkness right now, if you are perhaps weighed down with sorrow, if you feel like You are often in these days living in the valley of the shadow of death and cannot find escape. You can know that there is one coming who will usher you into your heavenly home. You can know that confidently by the promises and the truth of God's word. When the songwriters pen those lyrics, open wide our heavenly home, now we have no way of knowing the motivation behind them, but I wonder if they were thinking of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, where he talks there about gates and paths. In that picture, he says there's one gate that opens the path to destruction, and there's another gate that opens the path to life. But he says that the gate that leads to destruction is a wide gate and an easy way 
and that many enter that gate. On the other hand, few go through the narrow gate and the hard way. Yet that's the gate that leads to life. Jesus is making the point that for Christians, for the few, the gate will prove to be narrow and the road, will, the way will prove to be hard. But he urges us to take that road. Why? Because it ultimately will lead to life. It will open wide to life. It leads to eternal life, while the wide gate and the easy way leads to destruction. And so the writer of our song is pleading and longing, Come, Jesus! Come, Key of David! Come and meet us on this way that is hard. Come and meet us on this narrow way and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high. And so as we end our series of messages today, we want to end on this high note. May we be filled with longing and rejoicing. May our Christmas celebrations include much rejoicing in the fact that Jesus has come and that Jesus has provided the way for us to get to the Father. He is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said in John 14. The anticipated Emmanuel has come. But may our Christmas celebrations also include much longing, longing for what is to come, longing for Emmanuel to come again, longing for Emmanuel to come and take us out of this time of darkness, this, this hard and difficult and narrow road that we are on and lead us to our heavenly home. As we walk through these next few days, there's probably no better place to finish our Advent messages than to leave us longing for Emmanuel to come again. Longing for him to close the path to misery and pleading that he might open wide our heavenly home. The Christmas story, the coming of God to earth, is not just a story of what happened back then. It's also a story of what is coming later. So many of the images and words and realities that mark the Christmas story that we're so familiar with, that we love, repeat themselves as the Bible looks ahead to the future coming of the Lord. Realities like glory and joy and peace and hope. For example, I wish I could go through all of them, but take the reality of the glory of God. Jesus' coming was filled with glory. In Luke's gospel, we love to read the story right after Jesus was born when the scene shifts to, to a field where shepherds are keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appears to them suddenly. And it says, The glory of the Lord shone around them. And later, a multitude from heaven are saying, Glory to God in the highest. Jesus' coming was accompanied by the glory of God. The glory of heaven, the glory of God's presence. And even in his life on earth, Jesus exuded glory. One of his disciples, John, when he's looking back later and writes about the incarnation, John 1.14 says, We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But glory is also going to be part of the marvelous scene when Jesus comes again. Jesus says so himself. In Luke chapter 21, verse 27, he says, And then they will see the Son of Man 
coming in a cloud with power and great glory. In Titus 2, verse 13, it talks about waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But as I said, it's not only the glory that marks both the first coming and the second coming. Many of the spectacular scenes that we associate with Christmas are going to repeat themselves even with greater glory in the coming, the second coming of Christ. The book of Revelation especially talks about things like stars and, and angels and people worshiping the Son of God. And it will be spectacular. And what's amazing is that at the second coming, we will all get to be there. Now we just get, not just, but we get to read about the Christmas story. We, we get a couple of glimpses about what it was like when Jesus was born, but we weren't there. Even when we try to reenact the, the nativity scene around the manger, the manger, we get it wrong. But when Jesus comes again, we are going to be there. Did you realize that? Even if we die before he comes again, the Bible says in, in 1 Thessalonians 4 that Jesus will come down and that the dead in Christ, Christians who have already died when Jesus comes, will be with Jesus at his second coming. Together with those who are still alive, we will be there. And it will be amazing. It will be spectacular. But what do we do until then? The glory of Jesus, his coming, happened back then. He's already lived the perfect life. He's already died on the cross. He's already atoned for our sins. He has already risen from the dead. He's already taken his place in heaven. And we know he is coming back again in glory. So what do we do in the meantime? What do we do as we long for Christ to come again? Well, that's actually part of the answer. We must long and we must yearn. And I want to quickly show us a few biblical texts that should encourage us as we long for Jesus to come again. This is not exhaustive, but this is some of the texts that are there that will encourage us. The passage that Pastor Andrew read for us in Romans 8 talks about our longing in terms of groaning. Did you catch that? Just maybe turn there for a minute to... Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 18. Verse 18, Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, revealed to us. Suffering is what we experience now. Glory is what we will experience later. And because we suffer now, we groan for what is coming, for what is yet to come. Skipping down to verse 22, it says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. 
Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes in what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. Those words in verse 23, I love them. They could be uh, transcribed onto a plaque. We groan inwardly while we wait eagerly. We groan inwardly while we wait eagerly. As humans, we have a tough time waiting. Can we just admit that we are not patient? If we have to wait for anything, whether it's in a grocery line or as is what Tasquin is famous for, the train, we tend to grumble. We hate waiting. But look how this describes our waiting. It says we groan inwardly, so inside we're groaning, but not because we have to wait. We groan because of our present suffering. We wait eagerly. We're sort of, the the picture is that we're sort of just rubbing our hands in eager anticipation, like children waiting to open their presents, because we know what is next on God's timetable. We anticipate because we know what is next on God's timetable. We wait, verse 24, with patience because we know that God is going to close the door at some point on our present troubles. We know something way greater, way grander is coming. And that means we cannot get too comfortable here. We ought not to get too comfortable here. This world is not where we rest our hopes. As I say that, you can probably all say amen. We likely all know that down deep. We've all likely experienced enough pain and hardship to know that. But we're sometimes slow to learn, aren't we? We keep trying to store up treasures for ourselves on earth. There's a reason that Jesus said those words. Where moth and rust destroy and thieves can break in and steal, rather than storing up treasures in heaven, the kind of treasure that nothing can destroy and no one can steal. Brother and sister Christian, let's yearn for heaven. Let's pray that God would remind us of the ultimate temporary and fleeting nature of the stuff on this earth. And that he'd fill us with longing for the eternal glories of heaven. Let us sing, O come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. Let us wait eagerly. Let us plead longingly for Jesus to come again. This concept of waiting eagerly shows up in another place in the Bible. It actually shows up in two other places, except it just kind of flips around the word order. In Romans 8, it's eagerly waiting. In the other two, it's wait eagerly. Or the other way around. I can't remember which is which now. One is in Galatians 5.5, where it says we eagerly wait. There it is. For the hope of righteousness. But the one I want us to see is in Hebrews 9, verse 28. Hebrews 9, verse 28. Turn there. This is a a great verse that sort of uh, encapsulates or capsulizes and and sums up the reason behind the first coming of Jesus. I often talk about the reason for the season. This is it. And and, And it also then tells us 
about the reason for the second coming of Jesus. It says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's so good, isn't it? We worship Jesus at Christmas because when we think about how Jesus was born in a wooden manger, we also think about how that same building material was used when Jesus bore the sins of all those who would ever repent and put their faith in him. That's why he appeared the first time. That's the real miracle of Christmas, that God the Father would send his very own son into the world as a baby, as a man, in order to bear the sins of many. Let those words sink in. Christ bore your sins. You don't have to bear the penalty that your sins deserve. This is a miracle of mercy and grace and sacrifice. He was offered up. Let me pause here again to remind you that this is the good news right here that you can share with your loved ones who are not yet saved, with those who are not yet trusting Christ to deal with their sins. Maybe some of you are here today. Here is the truth. We are all sinners. We are all sinners. We have all, every one of us, violated our Creator's expectations for those He created. We have all broken God's laws. None of us is exempt. And because of that, every one of us stands guilty and deserves to bear God's, God's just and right penalty for our sins. That is the truth. But here's the good news that needs to accompany that. God, in his, in his great ingenuity, we might say, because no one else could conceive of this kind of plan, and in his great love, as Ephesians 2 tells us, designs a way for us not to face the just wrath of God. He sends his Son to become fully man, yet fully God. That is, he became a man in every way, every way except one. As God, he never sinned. And because of that, he was qualified, eminently qualified, to bear our sins on a cross. It's wonderful. God initiated and enacted this plan. And Jesus carried it out. But the Bible also tells us that it requires a response. And really, in comparison to what God did for us, it's a simple response, really. God invites us to turn from our sins. It's called repentance. And to believe. That is to, to, to throw all of our hopes for dealing with our sins onto Christ alone. That is the good news of Christmas. The manger looks ahead to the cross and to the resurrection. Jesus appeared the first time to bear the sins of many. But the second half of Hebrews 9.28 says that Jesus will appear a second time. 
and he will appear a second time not to deal with sin. He's already done that. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There are our words. We've been saved from sin. The angel told Joseph to name the baby Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. But we still wait eagerly. We long for our final salvation. When we will be saved not from the penalty of sin, which has already happened, or from the power of sin, which Jesus already defeated on the cross, but from the presence of sin and from the effects of sin that we feel all the time. When all the pain and all the tears and all the grief and all the struggle of our present existence will end. Because of this hope, we keep singing, O come, thou key of David, come. Close the path to misery. Open wide our heavenly home. Well, I want to leave us with one more set of verses that express this present longing for Jesus to come again. And these are in a little book called Titus in the New Testament. We're looking for it, first, second, Timothy, and then comes Titus. So in Titus 2, verses 14 to 17, I already mentioned part of it in connection with glory, but I just want to read these verses just as a way of encouraging us to keep waiting and to keep exercising faith. That's really what waiting eagerly is. But these verses also answer the question of what do we do in the meantime? How do we keep occupied while we wait? Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. That's Jesus coming the first time. Another name for him, if the New Testament would write, if they'd write a come, o come Emmanuel and add some verses and put New Testament images, they might call him the grace of God. And they might call him also, we're going to have another name right away, but the grace of God has appeared. That's Jesus the first time. Bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. There's another name. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's talking about his second coming, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's another verse that just says that we are lawbreakers and we need someone to save us from, redeem us from all lawlessness. But that covers all those great truths that we've already seen in other places in the Bible. Christmas is all about God's grace appearing in the person of Jesus, the one who came to redeem us and to make us his own. But Jesus is also for us our blessed hope. He's our Redeemer. He has redeemed us back then, but he is also our hope looking forward, the one whom we are longing for to appear again in glory. But did you notice how we should occupy ourselves while we wait? We don't sit there like we do when we're in a hurry and we're waiting in line or we're waiting for the train that stopped on the tracks. We don't just twiddle our thumbs and stew and, and, and grumble. No, this says that we aim to live 
self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It says we're actually being trained to do this. We're being trained to renounce godlessness and worldly passions. Oh, how we need to be trained in that. We need to go to the school of, of, um, of being trained to renounce godlessness and worldly passions. But in other words, we don't wait idly. We stay active. And we aim to be godly. We aim to be holy even as he is holy. That's what we do in the meantime. Yet, as God's redeemed people, we are awaiting people. We are awaiting people. We are an anticipating people. We are longing for, we are eagerly waiting for the appearance of our blessed hope. We are waiting for the key of David to come. And we are waiting for him to meet us there on what has been a narrow and hard road for our whole life and to open wide our heavenly home and to take us there to be with him forever. And because this is a sure hope, we can rejoice. Our longing turns into the harmony of the chorus. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel, shall come to thee, O people of God. I like what John Piper says about the structure of this hymn. He says, artistically, the rhythm of plaintive longing in the verses, punctuated with powerful bursts of joy in the refrain, are, to my mind, just about perfect. He says, the mystery and wonder of Christian living are captured. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Fulfillment of glorious promises, yes, that's Christmas. But consummation in the new earth with new bodies and no sin, not yet. We are left confident, but still crying out, O come, O come, Emmanuel. That says it well. But the Romans, words of Romans 8.18 say it even better. We groan inwardly while we wait eagerly. We groan inwardly while we wait eagerly. May God embolden us and encourage us and strengthen us to wait. Let's pray. Father, we confess and admit that we often get so caught up in the cares of this present world that we, that we don't even think about the glorious day that is to come. Never mind eagerly waiting for it. Maybe the only time that does happen is when we suffer. But we ask that you might create in us both a groaning for what is and an eager anticipation for what is to come and for who is to come. As your people, as your church, we wait for our blessed hope. We long for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. As we leave today, be comforted with these words of promise and longing that are part of God's final inspired words from the very end of the Bible.
In Revelation 22, the Lamb says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. I, Jesus, am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen.